0: You are listening to com As well, you can hear these podcasts at com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 92 by Rudolf Steiner, the listener notes of 16 lectures entitled The Occult Truths of Myths and Legends, uh, translated by Paul King. This is Lecture 8, given in Berlin on the 14th of October, 1904, entitled The Myth of the Argonauts and the Odyssey. By looking at various myths, I should like to create a basis for a certain kind of esoteric teaching that I will discuss in the following sessions. Today I should like to speak about a very important myth we also find in Greece and which, like every other myth, can be interpreted in different ways and at many different levels. Today we will explore its essential core. Before I do so, however, I would like to preface it with some theoretical matters. In the last issue of Lucifer Gnosis, I pointed out that within the last three cultural periods of Atlantis, A certain influence had begun in humanity, which in a certain sense still continues today. This influence is associated with the fact that people became mature enough at that time to live in what we call our intellect, our reason. Prior to this, man was more of a memory being. Up until the Fourth Atlantean Cultural Epoch, his memory was particularly highly developed. Our combinating intellect, our computing capacity, in short, that which is the basis of our whole present culture, began in the fifth Atlantean period with the Proto-Semites. For this reason, these Proto-Semites could also become the ancestral race of the whole fifth post-Atlantean root race. During the course of evolution, the task of this root race was to develop especially the intellect focused on the physical plane. Now, when a new phase of development begins in humanity, such as that of the intellect, it is possible that new beings, who had previously gone about their existence in concealment, start to have an influence on evolution. And indeed, from that point onward, from the fifth Atlantean cultural period onward, a certain host of beings, who had previously gone unnoticed, could now become active in the field of human evolution. We must picture these beings as highly developed, as far more highly developed than man at his stage of evolution at that time, but they had fallen behind in a certain sense from the beings who, in the middle of the Lemurian era, had begun to work on the human race. What happened now was an extra stimulus. The beings I am talking about belonged, with their whole nature, to what we call the lunar development, Old Moon. They had undergone their evolution during the Moon Epoch, but had not advanced as far as the beings that were able to intervene during the Lemurian period. They had fallen behind the normal development on Old Moon. They had come just far enough that they saw the capacities man had attained at that time as being equal to themselves, and the consequence of this was that they were able to take possession of them. Previously, people had not been intelligent beings. Now... They received the intellect, and this new capacity was used by these beings for their further development. And so it happened that the developmental phase began, which we call the preparation for objective, in quotes, scientism. This had not previously existed and will cease to exist later on. All the wisdom achieved in human evolution was fundamentally connected with what we call love cold, purely calculating scientism is influenced by the beings representing an, in quotes, extra stimulus. So the influence of these beings, who are still active today in a certain way, will only come to an end when all our intellectual activity, everything we can know, everything we call rationality, is permeated once more with love. When intellect and love have united once more into a higher wisdom, then the influence of these beings who are invisible on the physical plane will disappear. Making people aware of this influence, making the mystery pupils aware in the first place, this was the task of the Greek mysteries. A particularly important period began for these beings around the 8th century before Christ. If we look at the cultural epochs of our fifth root race, those that founded the ancient Vedic culture, then the ancient Persian, then the Chaldean Egyptian cultures, we find that even in the periods that brought forth the Druidic culture, there was actually no objective sober science. This only arose when the fourth cultural epoch began to dawn more and more. We can place the beginning of the fourth cultural epoch at around the 8th century before Christ. With this, an objective science, separate from all the other human content of our heart and mind, began to dawn. When a Chaldean priest engaged in astronomy, he was still trying to fathom the intentions of the rulership of the cosmos. It was the same with the priests of the Egyptians and the Druid priests. They were looking for insight into the intentions of the cosmic ruler. Knowledge that was purely intellectual first dawned in Greece. This purely intellectual knowledge, which was prepared for gradually and emerged through the influence of the beings I mentioned, but was still connected with other human activity, was unleashed completely in the fourth cultural epoch of the fifth root race. In contrast to external wisdom, the initiates who received instruction in the mysteries of that time experienced the primal wisdom human beings had previously partaken of as something that had been lost and needed to be found once more. There was a particular point in time when this deceased wisdom separated off from encompassing primordial wisdom. This point in time in which sober, dry wisdom separated from the comprehensive primordial wisdom was designated by saying, Around the 8th century before Christ, the sun passed through the spring equinox in Aries, the ram. This passage of the sun through Aries is a repetition of a passage that had taken place millennia before through the same sign. As is well known, the sun passes through the whole zodiac, through the zodiacal signs of Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, Leo, Virgo, and so on, and so has passed through Aries many times before. The last time it passed through Ares at the spring equinox was when man still possessed the union of love and knowledge, and therefore also primordial wisdom. This primordial wisdom had now been lost and given way to an external culture of the intellect. This whole process, in its occult significance, was given expression by the Greek mystery priests through the tremendously profound myth of the Argonauts in which a ram symbolizes the union of love with knowledge. Let's first look at the myth as a whole. We are told that Phrixus and Hela suffered much at the hands of their evil stepmother, Aino. Because of this, Phrixus's divine mother, Nephali, appears to him and advises him to take his sister and flee. Nephali gives him a large ram with a golden fleece, on which they can fly over the sea. Hela falls and is drowned in the sea, which is thereafter given the name Hellespont. Phrixus, however, arrives with a ram at Colchis. There he sacrifices the ram to Zeus and gives the skin to King Aetes, who hangs it on an oak in front of a cave. Later, the Greek hero Jason, together with the most significant initiates of Greece at that time, Orpheus, Theseus, Hercules, and others, Sets out to bring back the ram's skin from the barbarian peoples of Colchis. By gaining King Aetes's youngest daughter Medea for himself, it becomes possible for him to bring the ram's skin back to Greece. Before doing so, he must conquer two fire breathing oxen. He also has to sow dragons' teeth from which spring up fully armed warriors wanting to fight. Through Medea, he is able to divert the battle. It was also she who enabled Jason to get the ram's skin and set out with it and herself on the journey home to Greece. Medea had brought her brother with her and killed him, throwing him in pieces into the sea in order to delay her father. While the lamenting father gathered up the pieces, they were able to continue their flight to Greece. In the 8th and ninth century before Christ, in other words, at the beginning of the period of Greek civilization. The occult meaning of this myth was taught to the Greek mystery pupils. The occult meaning told there is that those beings who make use of people's dry, sober intelligence attained a particular significance from this time onward. A longing for the primordial civilization that had once existed, the last time but one, when the sun passed through Aries, awoke once again. The fact that the Geminian twins, Phrixus and Hella are taken to Colchis by a ram, Ares, signifies nothing other than that a preceding sub-race, the Persian and Iranian civilizations with their Geminian nature, they stood under the sign of a good and evil, Ormuzd and Araman, wished to win back the union of knowledge and love. The previous sub-race had taken this into hidden regions, Earlier in the Atlantean period, this fleece, this wisdom, was the common property of human civilization. Then it was taken into remote mystery schools. It had to be brought back. We thus see the rationale for the mystery schools of Greece expressed in the myth of the Argonauts. In the Atlantean race there existed a primordial wisdom, so we are told. This primordial wisdom was at that time the common property of humanity. It was then lost, and could only be found in the caves and crypts of the mystery schools. But the Greeks re-established the mysteries for their initiates, and Theseus, Orpheus, Hercules, and others became the founders of these schools of wisdom by bringing back to Greece the primordial wisdom. Through Thales, Anaximenes, Socrates, and other philosophers, a cold intellectual wisdom was introduced that is objective mystery wisdom is connected with love. It is a wisdom that cannot be attained without purifying the passions, the forces of kama. Intellectual knowledge, on the other hand, can be attained without purifying kama. Thus the very important legend of the Argonauts portrays for us the transition from the third to the fourth cultural epoch of our present root race. The transition consists in a split in the previously common current of human culture into two streams, into mystery wisdom and into external intellectual knowledge. One of these streams was hidden, but in a way that was still effective and exerted an influence on Greek art and culture. It is portrayed in The Return of the Ram's Skin. It was only on intellectual knowledge that it was henceforth to have no influence. That is the myth of the journey of the Argonauts. In the legend of Odysseus, we also see its relation to the transition from one race to another. The Odysseus myth has been successively analyzed and interpreted in a great number of ways. Today I would like to discuss only the framework of the myth. In my book titled Christianity is Mystical Fact, I have tried to use the second kind of interpretation, the allegorical one. Let's look today at the third kind of interpretation, the occult interpretation. Odysseus who was one of the warriors at Troy, helped the Greeks to conquer Troy through cunning and cleverness. He went through great wanderings on water. I would ask you to keep this in mind. He came to the Cyclops, overcame the chief Cyclops and his one eye, and traveled on to Circe, who, as we are told, changed his companions into swine. Then he descended into the underworld, where he met the heroes who had fallen in the Trojan War. He was then subjected to the power of the sirens, who led men astray through the magic of their singing. We are further told how the majority of his companions succumbed to their temptation and how he was saved by having himself tied to the ship. Odysseus then comes to a place between Scylla and Charybdis where ships run the danger of being destroyed. He has to save himself from a whirlpool. He then comes to Ogygia, the island of the nymph Calypso. He remains there for seven years and is released when Zeus orders Calypso to let him go. He finally arrives at Ithaca, his home. He is led by the goddess Pallas Athena to his house and to his wife Penelope, who has had to withstand many perils from the suitors who are vying for her hand. She wove a cloth during the day and undid it again during the night because she had promised her hand to a suitor when the cloth was finished. Now, I would ask you to go with me through this outline of the Odysseus legend in the way we know it from Greek mystery wisdom. The initiation schools where what is here related actually took place led the pupil on the astral plane and the mental plane in such a way that he was able to move along a certain segment of human evolution, the segment from the middle of the Lemurian period to the point in Greece where the individual in the initiation schools founded by Orpheus, Theseus, Hercules, and others, could find the primordial wisdom once more. So the pupil was led to the astral and mental plane, and was shown processes humanity had gone through from the middle of the Lemurian period up to the point when the Trojan War took place. A piece of the primordial wisdom is depicted for us by the mythical element in the journey of the Argonauts. It indicates that it existed side by side with science at that time. What was it that was shown to people, to the initiation pupils, in the myth of Odysseus? This is portrayed for us representatively in Odysseus himself. Let's go back to the middle of the Lemurian period. Man was making a transition at that point from a hermaphrodite state to a state of sexuality, a transition from a state of vision without external physical sense organs for seeing to sight with external physical eyes. Until the middle of the Lemurian period, man really did have, in quotes, one eye, EYE, which was then replaced by his two external physical eyes. The pupil was taken back into this phase of evolution. He was to experience the transition from the pre-Lemurian period to the post-Lemurian period, to the period after the middle of the Lemurian race up to the emergence of the external eye, EYE. The Cyclops were people of the pre-Lemurian period. Odysseus encountered these on the astral plane. After this period, the human astral body was lowered into matter that was becoming increasingly dense and solid. This was presented to the initiation candidate. Then we approach the first Atlantean times. The Atlantean gains more and more the ability to manipulate life forces, to use them for his particular ends. The Atlantean developed high, well-trained astral capacities, which a Greek could only see by transporting himself back on the astral plane. This was the time, spoken about in so many old occult writings, when the Atlantean generations fell into the wildest arts of black magic. This period was presented dramatically to the mystery pupil in images of transformation. It was a period when human passions were so distorted by forces of black magic that their astral bodies resembled lower animals. This was also the picture presenting itself when the Turanians succumbed to these wild magical arts later on. The astral body was so transformed under the influence of black magical arts that put symbolically, we can say, Circe changed Odysseus's companions into swine. The Greek initiate went through this point in human evolution. Then Odysseus descended into the underworld. Now, whenever a descent into the underworld is portrayed in Greek mythology, it signifies that an initiation is taking place. When we are told that a hero descended into the underworld, it is an expression in the narrative of nothing less than that the hero in question was initiated, that he became acquainted with things that lie beyond death. Odysseus was an initiate, and the legend of the Odyssey is itself a depiction of his initiation. So, now we move on to the moment when, after the Atlantean flood, people encounter the first effects of the beings I have been speaking about, who reveal themselves in civilization, in the knowledge and arts of those times, with effects that after the Atlantean flood had an influence on the intellect. The first beginnings of a purely external physical civilization were presented to the initiate as the lure of purely earthly arts, of purely earthly culture. These are called the siren calls of the young fifth root race. The siren calls of the young fifth root race are what is so frequently spoken about in occult writings. For on the one hand, We have the great wisdom teachings of Manu, who indicates to the people of the fifth root race that their intellect must be lifted up to the divine. This found expression in the Vedas and in the religion founded and bequeathed to his religious companions by Zarathustra in Persia. Next to this we have a purely rational civilization, which diverts people away from what develops under the influence of Manu. You will find what took place here written about in all occult writings. Manu chose a small handful of people and went with them into the Gobi Desert, or Shamo. Only a small number remained loyal to him, while the others became disloyal and dispersed in all directions. This important event, that Manu initially chose a portion of the Proto-Semites, that only a smaller part of these chosen ones followed him, while the other part perished, because they followed the siren calls of external culture, this important event was shown to the initiation candidate. The Odysseus myth then goes on to portray another important moment in human development, the passage between Scylla and Charybdis. So what is actually beginning now in humanity? Now comes the first beginning, as we have seen, of actual Kama-Manas culture. Up to this point... It had been in gradual preparation. Now it begins. Our fifth root race is a predominantly Kama-Manasic civilization. Kama is active at the astral level and continues to be so in our astral body. Manas, however, is what is active in the physical brain. Only in a future phase of evolution will Kama, the astral body, also be so far advanced as to be able to think. Today, Manas has established itself initially in the physical brain. Between these two hurling vortices, Scylla and Charybdis, we have to pass. This is depicted by Odysseus's passage through Scylla, Manas, and Charybdis, Kama. On the one side is the astral whirlpool, the drives, desires, and passions in which man can founder and on the other side is the physical intellect chained to the rock. We have already met the rock in the Prometheus myth. Now we meet it again. The human intellect is exposed to all the dangers of the body, the rock. Man has to pass between the cliffs of the physical intellect and the whirlpool of astral life. If he gets through, if he recognizes what dangers threaten him but nevertheless manages to stand firm, he comes to the island of Calypso. To hidden wisdom. There he can look out into the future of humanity, undergo a period of trial lasting seven years. This is also why Odysseus remains with Calypso for seven years. Everyone who wishes to attain initiation must go through a trial period of seven years, and this is indicated by the stay with Calypso, where hidden wisdom lies behind the illusions. Only then can he come to the place the soul reaches when it has escaped the whirlpool of astral passions. Read Homer's title, uh, Odyssey. He indicates that man seeks his own soul, the return of one's own soul. That is the searching for home. Anyone wishing to really understand the Odyssey should not take the view of a recent researcher who suggests that what is meant by Polyphemus and the Cyclops is nothing other than that Etna has spewed out fire and the burn mark on the giant appears to Odysseus to be his eye, E-Y-E. Odysseus finally reaches home as a beggar with no outer possessions. This implies that the individual who has seen through the unimportant aspects of the external world and worldly possessions, who seeks the soul's home not in Maya but behind Maya, reaches home in a mystical sense as a beggar, that Odysseus is in truth a sage is indicated by Pallas Athena leading him home. In all esotericism, one's own soul is portrayed as a feminine being. A female figure is always chosen as a symbol for the striving of the soul. Goethe calls it the eternal feminine. Just as in the journey of the Argonauts we have Medea, so here we must regard Penelope as Odysseus's own soul to which he seeks the way back. In the Christian religion, it is the Virgin Mary who is the human soul striving for redemption. But the significance here is much more profound. This Penelope, to be precise, is the soul of man of the fifth root race. The fifth root race has to cultivate the intellect. In itself, it is the most unproductive thing. It can only become productive when applied to a content. The intellect is a net spun around things we have got from somewhere else. When external experience teaches you something, you can then encircle it with what is spun by the intellect. When higher occult wisdom teaches you something, you can then encircle it with what is spun by the intellect. People often say that occult wisdom contradicts intellect. Nothing contradicts intellect. But intellect only exists to combine, to join things. Out of itself, it can obtain nothing. You can't prove anything from the intellect. This unproductive quality of the intellect, which is actually the soul of the fifth root race, is depicted in Penelope's constant spinning and undoing of her weaving. Odysseus is led by wisdom. The initiate has to find the way to the soul of the fifth root race, to the unproductive intellect but he will only connect with the soul of the fifth root race in the right way if he is led by Pallas Athena. Pallas Athena, in turn, is feminine, a goddess, another force in the soul, wisdom, the real guide. After many journeys, and provided they are genuine journeys of development, man must attain intellect. Pallas Athena, wisdom, must be his guide in this. This is what was presented to the mystery pupil in Greece, and what Homer wished to relate in his profound legend of Odysseus. So, what is portrayed for us in the legend of Odysseus is an initiation as cultivated in Greece at that time, an initiation that was nothing less than a repetition at the astral and mental level of the experiences of people in the Lemurian period up to the time of the mysteries themselves. Odysseus is cunning and clever, and Troy is conquered by his faculties. The clever man of intellect is man of the fifth root race. But he must seek his home, his Penelope, by detours, in order properly to walk his path in the fifth root race. One who is merely cunning or clever would not find the right path in the fifth root race. He must first get out of himself and broaden his view by looking back over the long path of humankind's evolution. Odysseus is the representative of the cunning Kama Manas individual who must make many journeys in order in the fifth root race to be led back to his soul. The End of Lecture 8